Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. I'm going to kick this one off by going back to the previous podcast because that one, uh, tail end of it, we got into the importance of using foliage in enclosures to give them cover. And it's a topic that I think bears repeating because I'm guilty of this myself. And uh, unfortunately, a, a lot of folks, especially those who haven't been working with tarantulas as long as some others, you know, might be just getting into it sometimes don't appreciate how much of a difference it can make having something to hide behind, not just the hide. We all use the hides. That's the standard. You know, most people put the hides in there. Although the reason why I bring this one up is after doing that podcast, I've received three emails in the past week. And again, if anybody's out there, if you said this isn't me criticizing, it's just recognizing the importance of mentioning this and and going through these topics. Because a lot of times I do the topics and they're inspired by correspondence I have with people that I don't, you know, I'm not trying to call anybody out. It's more just look at this is still an issue. People aren't, you know, necessarily getting this information or getting this concept as well as, you know, we would hope. So I think what happens is a lot of it probably stems from pet stores where they have them set up in these Barrett enclosures because unfortunately for pet stores, you know, A, we've already established the majority of them don't know what they're doing. And that's, if you're out there working at a pet store that does, thank you. I I sincerely mean that. There are some people out there. I've spoken to some people that work in pet stores. I've spoken, my favorite one was somebody that basically had been listening to my stuff and watching my videos for years. You know, the guy knew what he was doing. And I'm not just tuning my own horn, but you could tell he was doing research. He was looking at other places. And he took a job at a pet store and they had an abysmal care of tarantulas and he turned the whole thing around. And it was an amazing story. And he's like, thank you so much because when I took this job, I was able to go in there kind of with authority and go, this is not how you care for him. So that's amazing. But unfortunately, people see these barren enclosures. And I think part of the problem is you're trying to sell an animal. So for example, somebody sent me photos of a cobalt blue or C. lividus in an enclosure that was basically an inch of substrate, no hide, a bright light on it. It was curled up in the corner. It was it was horrific. But if you think about it, you can understand how that happens because you have a pet store where they're trying to sell an animal. And if you set up that species correctly, you're not going to see it. So it's basically like, oh, here we have a blue tarantula. You can't see it because it's in eight inches of dirt. And again, not making excuses. Please don't misunderstand. I just understand how this stuff happens, how they get set up in these terrible situations because the pet stores are thinking more about money than maybe this isn't the correct animal for them to sell. I mean, honestly, if I'm a pet store and I'm just keeping a few tarantulas there, I'm going to want to keep species that are normally visible and not try to sell ones just because they're blue. And think about it, the majority of people shouldn't be buying a C. lividus anyway. You know, somebody off the street, they're going to have no idea. They're going to be one of those people that probably thinks that their, you know, bites are no worse than the bee sting because that's a rumor that goes around that unfortunately only holds true for most of the New World species. They pick this one up, they get it home. Hey, I wonder if you can handle it. Boom. So, Again, I'm not turning this into a big thing against pet stores, but just I can understand how people would go in, see this C. lividus in this terrible enclosure, go, oh, that's how the pet store had it. And obviously, if a place is going to sell animals, they're going to know about the animals they're selling and know about their proper care, right? Well, wrong. And then they bring it home and they set it up the exact same way. They go, oh, the pet store guys, here's a 10-gallon aquarium. This will be great for it. Great size. Just throw down a sprinkling of dirt on the bottom and you know, throw 30 crickets in there a, a day and it'll be fine. And, you know, sometimes they get water dishes. They'll sell you a couple sponges for them because, of course, you got to put the sponges 
in there. And then what ends up happening is somebody will email, hey, Tom, I got to see Lividus. I know that you said yours is uh, fairly well behaved, but mine is, you know, kind of crumpled up in the corner and it looks kind of stressed out and scared. I don't know what I did wrong. And I, I always follow up with, oh, could you toss me a few photos of the setup? And that's usually where it becomes like a sometimes a detective game. It's kind of fun for me where they'll sometimes I'll send stuff and it's blatantly obvious right off the bat. Sometimes I'll send pictures like, oh, wait a minute, there's the problem. A couple times recently, I got the one with the C. libidus where it was basically in the guy had it. You know, he said he it wasn't eating. He was throwing stuff in. It was ignoring the crickets. Well, it was on about an, I'll give two inches of substrate, maybe cocoa fiber. It looked like very fluffy and it was just curled up in a corner. I uh, had the water dish with the sponge and that was it. So I had to go into, and some of these, this is why I'm, unfortunately I'm getting behind on emails because sometimes I jump on the ones where I feel like it's an emergency situation and it turns into quite a long email. And I've mentioned before that I love putting, you know, links to podcasts and videos, but sometimes I'm afraid people aren't going to even bother taking the time to watch or to listen, and then the spider's still going to have horrible care, so I will try to encapsulate, and it turns into, like, the other day I sent one off, and just for giggles, I cut the email that I sent and pasted it into Google Docs to get the word count, and it was 2,200 words. And I'm like, my God, I just wrote an article to explain something to this person. So that's why I get behind on emails and stuff like that, but anyway... I've received in the past week three different photos of enclosures that were not properly set up for tarantulas. Uh, in two cases, it was no substrate and the tarantula didn't have high, didn't have cover, and they were wondering why it wasn't eating. I brought it home. It's been one case. It had been two weeks. It hadn't eaten. And again, it can take them longer than two weeks to settle in, but usually about that point, they're going to start to do a little webbing or at least find a spot that they feel comfortable in. They can't do that if there's no hide. They can't do that if there's no foliage. And I think that's the thing that a lot of us forget about and leave out. And I've done it. And sometimes I do it strategically. I have things like my formictopus, when they get a certain size, they don't need foliage. They're going to sit right out in the open. I don't even really have to put hides in there because none of them use their hides. They sit right out in the open. The problem is their enclosures look like garbage. They look very Spartan. And when I do videos on them, I get people that, you know, why don't you stick some stuff in there? You know, you're, you're supposed to put foliage. I get that. But the other thing they do is they chew the foliage. So I have a bin of a bunch of cork bark, and I can always tell which cork bark I've pulled out of a formictopus cage because usually they chew off the fake foliage at some point. So again, then it gets into all the discussion, do they need a more enriched environment? They need an environment with more to do in it. And so I start thinking along those, that, those lines because, again, I don't think we fully understand. I'm not saying these guys are geniuses, but I've seen signs that they can be conditioned to respond in certain ways, which shows they can kind of rudimentary – they have a rudimentary learning system there. You know, I was just talking about my C. versicolor that as a baby would come right to the edge at the bottom of her cone web. She made like a little cone web up in the corner of her cage, but the prey items wouldn't come up there and she wouldn't come down the hunt. And I would feed her with tweezers and she'd come right to the edge and after a while and accept the food. She knew it was coming. You could tell. She was coming right to the edge. Her little feet would hang out and she'd wait for it. So I don't know if we completely understand how much they actually get. Maybe later on, you know, you see the stuff with the ping pong balls. Personally, I think they're just trying to move the thing out of the way and it looks like they're playing. But I don't know. That could be them legitimately going, hey, 
I want to play with this ping pong ball. It kind of flies in the face of what we know about them because most of them, they are masters at conserving energy. So it's not like they have to go out and exercise and play like a dog. They, I don't think that they need mental stimulation, but it doesn't hurt to add that stuff in there. And I think that's a, a big theme. I'm doing a video, mentioned this earlier with Garis, and hopefully I'll get it done this week. I feel bad. Gar, if you're listening, I'm, I'm still editing it out. But one of the things we're talking about, it, there's been a lot of discussion about tarantulas not being given enough substrate. I have people that, you know, will purposely not give them enough substrate so that they can't burrow, so that they'll web, but then they'll be like, wow, this thing's crazy. Well, stop. It's not crazy. It's upset because it doesn't it doesn't feel secure in its enclosure. You need to, if you want it to feel secure, you give it room to uh, burrow. And one of the things we'll be talking about in this video is the fact that personally, and I think Gar believes the same, even I've had people go, well, I have a, what was, what did somebody hit me with? I think it was an H gigas, which I found odd that wasn't doing a lot of digging. It was kind of sitting up on the top. And he's like, I gave it 10 inches of substrate and it doesn't dig. I, that's fine. I, my theory is I'm going to give them that substrate in case they end up digging. I had an O Philippinus that I originally, that was burrowing. And then for a whole molt cycle, it stopped burrowing. It filled in its burrow and sat right up on top of that enclosure. And it still had about nine inches of substrate to dig in. It wasn't using it. And eventually I had to rehouse it. And I gave it again, nine, nine inches of substrate, eight, nine inches of substrate again, put in its new enclosure. Again, it wasn't burrowing. It was sitting up the top. Well, it molted. And guess what it did after it molted? It decided it was going to burrow again. So I'm glad I gave it that opportunity. So in terms of substrate, when in doubt, give them extra substrate. I, I'm a huge proponent. And as you get more into the hobby, you'll start to recognize the species that aren't necessarily going to use it. And I think that's a part with experience. You start going, all right, I've raised four of these. All of them hit about the four-inch mark. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at you for Mictibus concerides. They hit about the four or five-inch mark, and then they're bold. They're out and about. They don't use their hides at all, even if disturbed. They'll rather stand their ground. And you start to realize, all right, I can play a little bit with how I set them up. And then you'll find other species that one will burrow, one won't. When in doubt, give them space to burrow. I think the same thing holds true with some of the foliage. I think we forget sometimes that that foliage, besides just being pretty, if you're creative enough with it and, you know, you kind of use your brain when you set it up, you can create extra hide spots because sometimes they don't adapt immediately to their burrows. I know... We talk about opportunistic burrowers or species that will adapt. Like if they find a burrow, like, all right, this will work for me. But we have to remember that in the wild, they're wandering around. They have a couple things to choose. You know, they're not just going to be one burrow sitting out there in the middle of this forest. Like, oh, well, there it is. This is all I've got. They're going to be scuttling around. They're going to find a spot that works for them. I'm sure they probably pass some things up. When we get them in captivity, we give them one option. I mean, it's sometimes all we can do. We give them one option. They have one burrow to use, and sometimes they don't want to use that burrow. So you get them tucked up in the corner. You get them, you know, at the opposite end, hiding behind a water dish. That's natural. But I think that if you put some extra foliage in there, give them a little extra places to hide. You know, the foliage does help, especially with the arboreals or the webbing species. I found that... For example, we're going to get to the end of this one. We're going to talk about P. metallica a little bit. That's a species that I try to put more foliage in because they're a little extra shy, a little more bashful, a little more scared of light. Um, some species like the Avicularia versicolor, for example, uh, they are going to web to that. So you want to give them extra foliage for anchor points so it makes it easier for them to find that spot that they want to web in and create their home. So again, just to follow up on that, uh, three emails in the past week, all of them when I opened up, it was very Spartan enclosures for species that didn't need it. One was um, recently, actually this was a couple weeks ago, it was a GBB that wasn't webbing. And I'm like, the guy's 
very, very polite. And obviously he was curious. He's, he's like, they're supposed to web. I'm, I'm worried that something's wrong with my setup, which is awesome. It means he didn't just sit there and go, well, I got a defective spider. I got a spider that doesn't want to web. He was giving it thought and he reached out. And my thought process was it probably doesn't have anything to web to. And he sent in a picture of the enclosure and lo and behold, there was nothing for it to web to. It was basically set up like a terrestrial, like a little I think it had to hide some dirt, and that was it, no anchor points. So, you know, easy fix. Put in some anchor points, put in some plants, and you're fine. So I do think this is something I'll touch on more in the future, and I'm going to touch on it in the video, I think, because this is one that I think sometimes might benefit from a visual because it's one thing to talk about. It's another thing to go, all right, here's an example of something I set up that worked well. Here's an example of something I set up that didn't work well. I've done it. Believe me. I mean, it happens. You set something up, you think it's a great enclosure and stuff doesn't end up, you know, it doesn't end up, the spider doesn't end up where you expected it to end up or where you wanted it to end up. And I think that's just part of the hobby is feeling your way through. And I think a lot of us go through this where we do our best to figure out what does this spider need? What is the best setup for the spider? And sometimes it, you know, it varies from specimen to specimen, even within the same species. So again, just wanted to touch back on that one because I thought it was interesting that this week I ended up with three of them, which was awesome because I did cut and paste the link to the podcast and said, hey, go to this mark in the podcast and I talk a little bit about setting them up and this might help you. And then of course, wrote my long-winded email trying to explain it as well. So thought that was kind of cool. A couple other things I want to talk about today. I have a couple uh, breeding projects going on. I'm very selective when I do my breeding because after the, you know, I, I think there was, a, I've alluded to this before, the Hapalopa species Columbia large was a wake-up call of how much work, how time intensive it can be. And I I am in awe of people that breed constantly because I just don't know where they find the time. Well, part of it is I'm doing the Tom's Big Spider stuff. I mean, uh, writing the articles, doing the videos, the podcast, it takes time and that's a lot of my free time. And I do have other hobbies, but it's something that I really need to seriously consider when I'm going to breed and try to time it. I did not time this one correctly because what's going to end up happening is if I get sacks, it's going to be when I'm in the heat of getting back to school and getting into the swing of being off of my summer break and having to work again. So we'll see how that goes. But anyway, the first one I paired was one of my O. philippinus, Orphanacus philippinus, which is obviously one of my favorite species. And I had an opportunity, unfortunately, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, somebody had a male. And unfortunately, at that time, one female was in pre-molt, one female was has just molted, and I hadn't fattened her up, and I really didn't have the time for it at that point. But recently, I mean, on summer break, I was talking to Tanya from Fear Not Tarantulas, and she had a male that had just matured. So I said, you know what, what the heck, let's do it. So we bred them first. Now, I don't have video of this one because I'm obviously off work right now, although I'm about to go back pretty soon. That Those back-to-school ads really hurt when you're a teacher, you know. But anyway, um, I couldn't pass up the opportunity, so we decided to breed. So Billy's working during the day, and I hadn't. the male was climbing, going out of his gourd, trying to get out of the cage. So I'm like, you know what, let me pair these guys. So I got them on the dinner table, you know, set everything up, got my catch cups ready, put the two enclosures next to each other. Now, when I pair, I like to let the male go over to the female's enclosure on his own. I don't like to prod or poke or pick them up and drop them right in there. I, In my limited experience, and obviously there's people out there have different ways to do it. I'm just saying this is what I do. I don't mind sitting there for a little while. He, In every case, the male has eventually kind of went, oh, wait a minute, there's a lady over here and, and kind of wandered over. So I put them next to each other. I did not tape this one because I got to be honest, um, when I'm pairing, I have to be over hovering over them with, um, usually I've got two paintbrushes in my hand. I'm ready to prime apart should the female show any aggression toward the male. And I don't want to lose a male unnecessarily because I'm too busy diddling with a camera. I, I have a huge pet peeve and a lot of times I'll go and I'll watch breeding videos 
when I get ready to pair something to see what to expect. You know, is the female kind of aggressive toward the male? Is there some type of courting ritual that they go through? And one of my biggest pet peeves, like it, it really irritates me, is when you have somebody that's playing around with the camera you know, holding the camera while they go at it and then the male ends up getting eaten. They're like, oh, well, you know what? That sometimes happens. You can't help that. Well, bull pucky, that's not true. I I just actually had to edit out what I said because I slipped, but that's not the case. And obviously, yes, it can happen naturally in the wild. That's part I was trying to explain to Billy and my kids were talking about she hates watching them breed because the females, you know, obviously there's that stress of the female possibly eating the male. We've had it happen. And and the first time it happened, it was, quite frankly, it was my fault. I, I went to breed my my Hapalopus species Columbia large. And when I went to put the male into the female's enclosure with the catch cup, the male came out of the catch cup, had his back legs on a catch cup, and was only about an inch from the female. And I was afraid that if I pulled the catch cup out at that point, he would bolt, run to the female, and she'd munch him. Now, what ended up happening is they did their courting ritual, and they backed themselves right into the catch cup. So when he was able to make insertion, she ended up munching him. There was nothing I could do about it. That was on me. It was it was a logistics thing. It, it it was one of those worst case scenarios where unfortunately, and that's one of the reasons I let the males wander over on their own now because that was a situation where I there was interference by me that possibly led to that. The second time I bred them, I was right there with the paintbrushes and she went right over the top and munched. Like I didn't even have an opportunity. He, She bent them as he was getting insertion. She bent them over. He got insertion and then she was down on him as he was getting insertion. Like there was literally it was a split second thing and I couldn't split him apart. So does it happen? Yes, absolutely. However, I've watched many videos where you can tell nobody's anywhere near them ready to break them up. It's so, oh, there you go, buddy. Good luck and hope you get out. And I've seen ones where people go to adjust the camera and the camera comes back on and she's got him like, oh man, yeah, that's unavoidable. Well, no, it's not. It, it definitely wasn't unavoidable. So anyway, not to go on a little tirade, but that, that always, I've, I've spoken to some other people, some buddies of mine in the hobby lately and that seems to be a pet peeve running all around people that you know needlessly waste males it's like they're throwaway like oh well he gets much he gets much well no because if he didn't get insertion you can try again and there's nothing to say with some of these males we need them in the hobby you can ship them off they can pair I've, I've used males before they've already paired two times and gotten successful pairings out of them so Please keep that in mind. If you're if you're one of those ones that's going to shoot it, set up a stationary camera. If you don't get the best shots in the world, I will applaud you. I was watching one video once. It really irritated me because the person who taped it had really terrible shots because he set up a, a camera on a tripod and he was in there with the brushes and his hands kept getting in the way of the camera and he was getting a bunch of dislikes because people were like, man, you can't see anything. Get your hands out of the way. Well, no, he was showing you basically what it looks like while being, you know, exercising precaution with the spiders to make sure that the male doesn't unnecessarily get much. Uh, so I, I wish I could have given it a heart, thumbs up. I did put a comment and I'm like, you know what? Good on you for actually spending more time caring about your animals than your darn YouTube videos. So anyway, the Ophilipinus, I was not, I, 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 the male was skittish as heck. I mean, this was, it was, it reminded me honestly of the alien facehuggers where they skitter all around. He was flying all around his, his tank a couple times. He almost got out of his enclosure just while he was positioning them next to each other. So I had a camera set up and I'm like, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about this. It's just going to be an added distraction. I need to make sure A, this guy doesn't get out and escape into the house and B, that if he gets in there with her, that he doesn't get munched. So I have no video of that. Sorry, everybody, but you know what? I feel okay about it. I'm not really worried about it. It would have made a good video, but so be it because the dude marched over there like a pro he started tapping immediately she started tapping within about five minutes he had her 
bent backwards, got a good insertion, hung around there for a minute, and then he just got out. She walked the other way, and it was perfect. Got him, cupped him, got him back into his closure. He was actually much more calm after that. Perfect. So male wasn't harmed. So hopefully we get a good pairing out of them, and I get a sack. I'm keeping an eye on her. She's been eating like a pig. I'm hoping within, you know, this was about two weeks ago, so we'll see how long it takes them to make the sack. And hopefully I'll have something to report there, and hopefully folks will pick some of these up because I this is one of the species that was kind of, you know, this is – for a long time, Tom's Big Spider's the logo was O. Philippinus, and actually I still use it for a lot of things, and it's just always been that one of my favorites. I like the color orange, so it allows me to work with the color orange. If anybody was ever wondering why my videos were always in orange, it was the kind of – jokingly we called it O. Philippinus orange because it was made to match the original logo that had the O. Philippinus in it. So – Hopefully that one's good. The other one we did the other night, which was a little more annoying and stressful, was the B. cabocla, the Bumba cabocla, the Brazilian redheads. I have a bunch of those, and I actually have one of the first slings I bought, matured male, and then I have a female that was given to me. And we decided, you know what, let's go for this. And the male, I will say, the one thing that threw me off is I'm so used to the males being so much smaller than the females, but this dude's huge. I mean, the female's a a decent-sized female, but the male is longer than her. Like, body-wise, overall, you know, mass, probably not quite as big as her. She's a little bit uh, larger in the carapace and in the abdomen, but the legs, the dude is lengthy. And supposedly, doing my research, I found that the females are particularly violent toward the males. These are ones you really got to watch out for. Now, I did go online to try to find a video to see what to expect from it. And in the video I found, which was a good one, the male kind of tackled the female and they rolled over and he ended up on, I think he ended up on her stomach and her on her back, which I found very interesting. So when it came time to uh, pair mine, I did have Billy on hand for this one because I did want to get video of this because there wasn't a lot out there. And we didn't set up a stationary camera because I it's just an added clutter to the table where I've already got a million catch cups and everything going around. Because if you've seen these males, a, they're fast, they're frisky, they're, they bounce all they, you know, they're like hyperactive spiders already. And then once they pair, a lot of them bolt. They try to get the heck out of there and they'll end up out of the enclosure, on your table, on the floor, whatever. So I want to make sure I've got a lot of catch cups handy, which means not as much room for things like the little tripods and the camera. I did away with that. But we did get the Samsung out, not the new camera. And Billy was on standby. She was amazing with it because the first time we sat there for about 45 minutes, the male uh, crept over, uh, the female immediately showed interest and started tapping. It was one of the first I've seen where the female was tapping before the male tapped. The male got a little closer to the female and then just kind of moseyed on, turned around and walked back to his enclosure. So I tried to prod him kind of a little bit to get him back over there. He started going over to her enclosure again. She tapped and he went to go walk back to his enclosure and I went to get the cup out of the way, in the way to kind of be like, nobody, we're going to go in here. And he bolted. And so we ended up having to grab him. We put him back in his closure. I'm like, that's it for the night. It was a lot of just watching him slowly wander over and then slowly get cold feet and wander back. So I decided to, when I put him back on the shelf, I put the male and the female right next to each other. They were both in those Exoterra breeding boxes conveniently. And Hopefully, maybe a lot of times there's obviously some type of pheromonal signature that they use because I've seen the males literally. I put them next to the females and they tense up and they know that she's there and they start wandering over. So I put them next to each other. The next day we set it up again. Billy's with the camera, a lot of false starts. The male doesn't look like he wants. Every time I try to put, he's facing one side of the enclosure. So what I will do is I'll take that side of the enclosure and butt that side of the enclosure up to the female's tank, hoping he'll just climb over. He'd go to the other side of the enclosure. So I'd spin it again. He'd go to the other side of the enclosure. I'm like, here we go again. Then finally, he starts wandering on over, and the female's basically right like on the other side of the glass from him between this 
hide that's a, a pumpkin, a, a resin pumpkin, which I adore because I love Halloween and came with the, the spider. And he climbs over to get into an enclosure, puts his foot on the pumpkin, goes to put his other foot down the ground, realizes she's there and freezes. So now he's stretched out doing like spider yoga over top of her, perpendicular to her. She's underneath him and they're just sitting there and they sit there and they sit there. And this goes on for a while. And I'm looking at Billy. I'm like, this is a debacle. And she's not tapping this time. He's obviously like, oh God, she's beneath me, isn't she? And nothing is going on. So we wait, we wait, we wait. Finally, he starts crawling over. He gets onto the pumpkin. She kind of turns around and they kind of face each other. And he's just reaching out with his leg like, hey, we cool? We cool? You okay? Are we doing this? And she kind of like rubs his leg back. And I'm like, all right, this could be good. And so after, I think this one only took, this might have been a half hour. It seems sometimes longer. You're sitting there watching spiders copulate on your table. And it just, I think that may sound thrilling to some people. It, it's, I have a terrible attention span, although it's fascinating. Don't get me wrong. It's fascinating. It's a lot of just waiting. And, and especially when you're trying to film it, you don't want to run a camera for 20 minutes. You're going to waste your battery. So you're kind of like, oh, here we go. Get it going. Get it going. And then like Billy will get the camera started. Like, oh, never mind. False, false alarm. He's just trying her out. So finally they touch legs. They start going at it. He flips her over on her back, just like in the video I saw and just pins her to the ground. Now I'm sitting there. You'll see eventually I'll put this video up where I've got two paintbrushes and what I try to do is loop their front, the female's front legs to keep them from getting in there, from getting you know getting a hold of the male, although her fangs were not up. It, I just try to keep her off. He goes in there. It was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 seconds of him getting penetration. And then he flips off darts on one side. She flips up and everything's okay. And again, he was much calmer after that, which is I always find kind of amusing with the males is they're all over the place. They they get insertion and they're like, yeah, yeah. it's almost like the old movies where they lay down in bed and smoke the cigarette. Like, yeah, yeah that was me. So he cupped him, no problems, right back in his enclosure, calm as can be. She's been eating, so hopefully that one's bred. So good news is two of the species that I absolutely adore, that I've talked about for years, that I've tried to turn a lot of people onto, that hopefully I produce sacks. We'll see how it goes. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. Um, hopefully the males are in good shape. So if I don't get anything, hopefully I'll be able to keep the males around. I have them on a cooler shelf in my tarantula room that's like in the 60s. So hopefully that'll keep them. That's a trick for the males where if, if you want to cool them down a little bit, it makes them last a little bit longer. So we'll see. Hopefully, fingers crossed, this will be a cool one and we'll get some of those slings out there, especially the Brazilian species because now with the whole Brazilian debacle, they're likely going to become harder to find and we will have to make sure that those species are prolific enough in the hobby here in the U.S. that we can keep them going in the hobby because it, it makes me nauseous to think that you know at some point some of these guys we might not be able to get them anymore. And it's very sad, especially species like the Bicaboco that don't get as much recognition. I can see those disappearing from the hobby and I love them. So I know I always want them in my collection. So we'll see, fingers crossed. I'll keep people updated on that. But again, uh, very. it's going to make for an interesting fall, unfortunately. Again, my timing wasn't fantastic. I always said that if I breed again, I'm going to breed toward the end of the school year. So I have the whole summer to, to take care of them. But I've kind of roped my 16-year-old. I'm like, hey, you're going to help me with these, right? You know, we can, I'll pay you like I need some help. So we'll see how that goes. All right. And to end this one off, we're going to do some species notes here. I don't know. Somebody's got to be selling P. Metallica's because I've been getting a ton of emails, YouTube messages, you name it, asking about P. Metallica and people who have slings that are kind of worried about their P. Metallica's. 
So what I'm going to do here, this isn't going to be a full care guide, so to speak, but I am going to cover some things that I think people should know when getting these guys. Now, I've kept several species of Pisolotheria. Out of all of them, the P. Metallica that I kept by itself, not the ones in the communal setup. That's a totally different ballgame and something I'd have to address separately. But the one I kept by itself was definitely the shyest, I think, of the ones I had and the one I had the most trouble getting to eat consistently. And I had originally, it's funny because when I first got this, the the P. Metallica, I was trying to do a care guide on it. And I originally left out the fact that mine wasn't eating particularly well because I talked to a lot of people, did a lot of research, and I wasn't hearing about this. So I'm like, all right, this has got to be something I'm just experiencing on my end. I have one that seems to be extra shy, that doesn't seem to take down prey as large as, say, another species of Pisolotheria would. And I kind of left it out. Then after more time went on and I talked to more people, I started talking to more and more people that were experiencing the same thing I did. The fact that they thought it was in pre-mole and then it mysteriously ate again, but then they dropped something else in and it seemed to be scared of the food. It was eating smaller prey compared to other Pisolotheria species. So here are some things to think about if you're getting a Pisolotheria metallica sling. Number one, we're going to see how this is how our, my podcast here is going to come full circle. Cover. When you set these guys up, they are very, very shy. They will, mine took forever to acclimate to its new enclosure. And at that point, I just, it was a tiny sling and I had it in one of the larger dram bottles, but there wasn't, it was like one piece of full fake foliage, like a fake leaf in it. And that, it would just kind of crumple up in a corner and it took a while for it to settle in and start webbing. I I ended up dropping some moss in there with it too, because at that point I hadn't put any moss in because it was kind of a smaller enclosure and it used that moss to make up the dirt curtains. So number one, if you're getting slings, uh, personally, I find that the smaller enclosures for the slings are better. You want a tight little enclosure. Not that, say you want to have it all stuffy, but I, I, if I had a small sling, like say a half inch, a three quarter inch sling, I might not jump immediately to the 32 ounce deli cup like I would with other piece of species. I might keep it in a smaller dram bottle. Now, if you choose to use, put it in something larger, say you get a little three quarter inch sling and you want to use a 32 ounce deli cup, I would put several inches of substrate and I would put a ton of foliage, cork bark, and things for it to hide behind. You want a nice, busy, full enclosure to give that spider a chance to find a place quickly that it wants to adopt as its home. That would be my advice because what will happen is, is it wrong to drop a sling that size into a 32-ounce deli cup? Absolutely not. But has experience taught us or some of us that that might be a little bit big for that particular species? Yes, we found that they can be a little more shy. They're Obviously, this is a species that has a reputation for being photosensitive. They won't eat as well. So you want to make sure it settles in as quickly as possible. So if you use something on the larger end, be sure to put a couple inches of substrate in. Remember, don't be surprised when they do a bit of burrowing behind that cork bark. Most of them are to live terrestrial really until they get a certain size most of the pisolotheria species and that's something i try to talk about a lot because i still get emails with people going i think my pisolotheria is defective i got a two inch you know p regalis and it dug underneath its cork bark and it's living like a fossorial no that's pretty normal for them so plan for that give it some substrate put some cork bark put two pieces of cork bark in there there's nothing to say a lot of times we get in the habit and i've started doing this more often lately with larger enclosures is giving them a couple different choices of where to go. So I put a couple pieces of cork bark in. Sometimes a piece of cork bark with another piece of cork bark on top of it, they will slip in between them. They love that. And I've noticed that. So it costs a little bit more money to set them up, but it gives them more of an opportunity to quickly find that that area of refuge that's going to make them feel secure. So don't worry if you're doing a 32 ounce deli cup, stick a couple pieces in there. 
Put some fake plants in there. Take the sphagnum moss and shove it up behind the cork bark. So what will happen with a lot of them is they shoot behind that cork bark. They dig down beneath that sphagnum. They feel much more secure. And when they're secure, they generally eat better. So the trick for these guys, more is better when setting up those first enclosures. Make sure they have ton of coverage. If you have one of the, I think it's the Amac boxes, they're like four by four by five and a half tall or something like that. I see a lot of folks keeping them in there and those can make great arboreal setups, but be sure, remember those things are crystal clear. There's a lot of, you have to put your, put yourself in the mind of the spider. They don't like the light particularly. They are very skittish and shy and you're in this crystal clear enclosure where all this light's coming in. You're going to need places to hide where it can get dark, where it can feel secure. So if you use one of these, one piece of cork bark and one little leaf popping out of the bottom is probably not going to be enough. You're going to have a spider that's going to climb up to the top corner and hunker down in there, which you don't want. And a little trick I found that works with some of my arboreal species, especially if you have a top opening enclosure because this makes it a little trickier to do maintenance. If you have one that has adopted the top corner, whether it be a 32-ounce deli cup or the little lids on the AMAC boxes, whatever it may be, and you don't want it up there, try putting the enclosure on a shelf. Now, this works better if you have a lot of places for it to hide on the ground. So make sure there's enough fake foliage and cork bark in there, but take it and put it on a shelf where it's right near a direct bright light. They will usually flee to try to get away from the light while daylight is, you know, while it's light out. And they'll hide and start constructing a burrow under there. And I've had this work very well with avicularia and pisolotheria. They'll build their little burrows underneath or they'll, the avicularia will go underneath the web or, in, or underneath the cork bark, inside the cork bark, web it up, and it won't sit up in the corner. And that's always worked well for me. So a little tip there, if you're having a problem, that sometimes works. I've had a couple of people have emailed me and I've, I'm always like, please let me know if it works. And I've gotten that, yep, it worked. It went and it's hiding now and it's doing fine. So... Again, with the P. metallicus lynx, expect, I know we read about how, you know, Pisolotheria, the pokies, are such vicious hunters, and the majority of them are, and I'm sure there are people out there, because remember, we can't deal in absolutes, but I'm guessing there are people out there that have P. metallicus they perfectly fine, and again, I said I had to separate my communal arrangement from them because those guys ate like beasts or something about, you know, strength in numbers. They've been eating great. They've been growing much, much faster than the one I kept by itself. But when kept separately, it's important to remember that they are shy. So set up the enclosure accordingly. If you're using just a little dram bottle, some sphagnum moss, a little bit of a you know cork bark hide, again, with the sphagnum moss behind it, a leaf, make it a little bit busy so they have many areas to hide in. And of course, I do keep mine moist when they're younger, so you do want to make moisten the substrate, but you don't want to get too stuffy in there, especially if you have a lot of, and this is something to think about too, if you have a lot of sphagnum and moss in there along with the substrate, that's going to hold moisture as well. So if you're hosing it down and the sphagnum's getting moist and the substrate's moist, you don't want to get things too dank and nasty in there. So make sure there's good ventilation. Sometimes just moistening down the su- the sphagnum moss works really well in just a corner of the substrate. Be cognizant of that when setting it up. Now, as far as feeding's concerned, I found that mine, were when it was younger, did not eat particularly great. Like I had one point where it went... I think it was almost a month and a half without eating anything. And I thought it was in pre-malt. And then one day I just went, you know what, I'm going to test it out with something. And I dropped a prey item in and it latched right on. And I think it ate two more times after that, then actually went into pre-malt, then molted finally. So keep that in mind. I've talked to other people that have experienced the same thing. They get them, it eats once, it doesn't eat again for a couple of weeks, then it eats again. 
be aware of that. It makes it less stressful when you know it's coming. What what stresses you out is when you hear about these spiders that eat, 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 and they only stop eating when they go into pre-molt. That's easy. It's the ones that sometimes don't seem interested in eating, and then they go several weeks, and then you try them again with something else, and they eat again. You're like, wait a minute. I thought this thing was in pre-molt. And then it doesn't eat again, and then you're not sure. Doesn't uh, doesn't hurt to try it out. Now, obviously, you're not going to be want to be fiddling with this enclosure too much with a potentially fast spider that can bolt on you. So I do encourage people at this time, especially with that species, they will eat pre-killed. So if you're worried about trying it out with something, pre-kill something, drop it right in a good spot where you can get to it easily. Don't, I've, I've done this before where you pre-kill something, you drop it in the enclosure and it falls all the way down underneath the sphagnum, like by its den, and then it's difficult to dig, to get it out when you need to remove it. So try to drop it on either on top of the cork bark, on top of the sphagnum. Just know they do come out at night and they hunt and they prowl their enclosure and it will stumble on it. So if you come out and it's gone, guess what? It's eating. If you come out and it's still there, pull it out, try again in a couple weeks. But I did find that mine, my pokies, when they got to be like two inches long, would take down, some of them would take down large crickets or almost like, like kind of the banded crickets. The band, the large banded crickets are about three quarters of an inch long up to an inch where the house crickets are usually a little bit longer. could be like an inch, inch and three quarters. They're just bulkier, but they'll eat larger prey wherein I found with the P. Metallica until they put on some serious size, they wouldn't. They'd be intimidated by the larger prey. So there's something to be aware of. And again, I'm working on P. Metallica is one of the species I want to do my spotlight on because I think I have a lot to say on them, especially with the communal arrangement. And I think they're a little more tricky than some of the other pieces of theory I've found and through talking people to people have found. Because again, this isn't about just what I'm seeing. I, I take what I see with a grain of salt because again, like with mine, when it wasn't eating well, that could have just been mine. I could have just had one that was a little bit weird that way, a little bit shy. It could have been my setup. Who knows? I could have had something not set up. I will say, looking back at that dram bottle, there probably wasn't enough place for it to hide in there. So that could have been on me completely. But I have heard from other people where some other piece of Letheria species, that wouldn't be an issue. They just adapt to it. The P. Metallica seemed less able to adapt in those situations. So best tips I can give smaller is better sometimes. So the dram bottle, if you have a really small specimen, sometimes the larger dram bottle might be a better setup, a little cozy, a little tighter to have it settle in better. But if you use a 32 ounce deli cup or one of those cylinder containers, you know, a quart cylinder container or one of those AMAC boxes, make sure you put a couple inches of substrate in. So even if though it's not going to use the substrate, you're filling up some of that extra space. Try a couple hides. Try a few different plants, you know, take some plants, fake foliage in there, Petco, sell some of the stuff. You can pop it right off the, it usually has a stem and the little leaves are on the stem. You can pop the leaves off and use it. Use some hot glue, glue that stuff in there, throw some sphagnum in there, give it a nice area or two. You could do like, I've honestly set things up, ones I think are going to be shy. I've done like the same setup mirrored, like one side, it's got the cork bark leaning up, some plants, some sphagnum, the other side, cork bark leaning up, some plants, some sphagnum, give it a choice of where to go. If it settles up top where you don't want it, I will tell you now, usually if they settle up top, especially with the piece of Etheria, it means they're nervous. They they appear to be nervous, I should say. I should, we're guessing, but they appear to be stressed and nervous. And they'll be in the corner and sometimes they won't come down to eat. So you don't want that. So again, try if, if you're having that problem, put it up top on a shelf in a well-lit room. I have a light that's right in my room and I have a shelf that I've used before that it's right near the light. So it, again, it's harsh light for a little bit, but they're going to retreat from that and they're going to find an area that works for them. And then after a couple of days, they web up in that area. You put it down, they never go back up to the corner again. So a little tip there, try them with smaller prey if they're not eating. If you're having a hard time figuring out if they're eating or not, try pre-kill. I have, that's one of the, the few pokey species... I Actually, I think that's the only pokey species that was actually doing pre-killed with. The rest eat no problem. 
And that way you can also remove it safely because you don't want that prey item. When you kill the prey item, you don't want it to drop down a place that's difficult to get in there and pull it out because then you might disturb the spider, have the spider bolt. Nobody wants that. And I will say they tend to outgrow that behavior. Once they get around three, three and a half inches, I didn't have any problem. Mine Mine was fine. It did take a little longer to grow than some of my other pokies, but that could be due to the fact that it's just a slower grower. Oh, that rhymes. Or due to the fact that mine wasn't eating particularly well, whatever it may be. And I will say, when I first got mine, the temperatures in my tarantula room did dip into the 60s sometimes. So that could have been something to do with it as well. Again, when you see something happen in your own collection that may be different than other people's, you do have to kind of take a step back and try to figure out what other factors might be leading to it. So there are, are things there that could have led to mine acting differently than others. However, through speaking with a lot of other people over the course of the last seven years that I've had it, I've found that many experienced the same thing I did under different circumstances. So one person I talked to, it was already 80 degrees over there and they were kind of getting the same thing. So it's not all of them. It's not, again, like when we talked about the P. muticus burying themselves, it's just something to be aware of that they may be a little more shy, they may uh, not eat as large prey, that they require a bit more cover, just some things to think about when setting yours up. And again, moist substrate, but don't overdo it if you got the sphagnum in there. I've seen some photos where people have, you know, the, the substrate's wet, the sphagnum's wet, the cork bark's wet. They don't need the, if that's going to create a stuffy environment for it. We don't want that. But you do, I did keep it moist. And then as they get older, I don't worry about it as much. My adult right now is on mostly dry. I do every time I go, I, she has a huge water dish. I give her a big, big water dish and I never catch her hanging over it. So I'm guessing the humidity for her is okay. Generally speaking, if you put a big water dish in, your substrate's dry and you find your spider, especially the arboreals will do this. They'll hang out right above that water dish. They're looking for moisture. So that's a heads up that you might want to moisten things up a bit. Mine hasn't done that. But as babies, I do keep them on the moisture substrate. And again, just recognize that not every pokey is exactly the same. You'll read a lot about how, you know, they're fast growers, they're excellent eaters. I have found with the P. Metallica, at least the ones not kept communally, those are beasts, that they can be a little more shy, a little little more finicky with some of these things. So just keep that in mind. Don't panic if it's not eating, you know, well right off the bat. That seems to be something a lot of people experience. But I do think creating a good environment, a secure environment for it is a huge stepping stone to having a relaxed spider, a more calm spider, and a spider that's more likely to, you know, eat like you're expecting it to and, and grow like you're expecting it to. So that will about button it up for this one. I apologize. I'm actually losing my voice because I teach a reading class and I'm going back to school pretty soon. And one of the things I wanted to do this summer is I have a lot of stories I've amassed. The point is with my reading class, a lot of the kids, they just hate reading. They, they loathe reading and trying to get them to actually engage in a short story or they call them books. It's amazing because I'll break out like a, a one of my stories, longer ones I do is like 5,000 words and like, mister, is this a novel? I'm like, no, not quite a novel. But one of the things I've, over the years, I've collected a lot of stories that are high interest. The kids love the horror type stuff, the twist ending things. And one of the things we talk about is like simile, metaphor, foreshadowing, breaking out into teacher mode here a little bit, but I'm going to explain myself. And um, suspense is a big one. And nothing does that like a good horror story with a twist ending where we talk about uh, dramatic irony, uh, situational irony, you know, dramatic irony when you know something the character doesn't. Horror movies are filled with dramatic irony and horror stories are filled with dramatic irony where you're recognizing something the person in the story doesn't know and that creates tension. So anyway, I've written a bunch of stories for my class over the years. I found other, you know, I used to do publishing, so I have authors that have let me use their stories because they have great themes. And we're not talking about hardcore stuff, but just stuff that has, you know, 
a little a little scare factor to it, some twist endings, and has these ingredients that we want the kids to study, recognize, and appreciate. However, one of the issues I have is some of my kids are at that point where they need somebody reading along with them as they do it. And sometimes a kid will miss an assignment or miss a class. And we do a lot of class discussions where we read the stories together and we go through and I stop and go, all right, what's going on here? What's the character doing here? And unfortunately, if they miss those classes, they kind of miss that discussion. And it's tricky for them to like when you're not a great reader to go on your own, read that story and catch up with the rest of the class. So anyway, where I was going with this is I decided to take all of these and turn them into audiobooks or mini audiobooks. So I've been going in now that I've been doing the podcast, I'm a little more comfortable speaking on a microphone. So I've been going, taking these stories recording them, doing audiobook versions of them where it's clear, concise, because they hate the things that read to them, the robot voices from Google or whatever. We've tried that before. And some of these stories, they don't have audiobooks because, well, A, a lot of them I've written. A lot of them are people that, you know, small press stuff that hasn't really gotten a lot of notice, so they don't have Amazon, you know, audio editions of them or whatever. So what I've been doing is recording them, and then I found a site that you could get uh, the sound effects for it. So I've been putting some sound effects in, some theme music. It's been kind of fun, really. It's been neat because I'm kind of – now I'm taking something from the Tom's Big Spider stuff and bringing it into my teaching, which is usually the the opposite of how this goes. So I've spent the last two weeks recording a bunch of these. I think I've done about 15 of them so far. And it takes some time. And what I've realized is I can do about three of them. I've been getting up at like six in the morning, have my coffee, eating my breakfast. Kids are all, you know, dogs are asleep. Kids are still asleep. And then going to about 9, 30, 10 o'clock recording these. And what's happening is it's putting a strain on my voice. So today I'm having a hard time talking. So if I sounds like my voice is gone a little bit, I think it's probably strained because I've spent a lot of time talking lately, which is good because I'll be ready when I get back to school and I'm teaching and talking. But it's been a lot of fun. It's been really cool to do this. What I'm going to do is throw them up on uh, my YouTube channel for my school account. And so now when the kids miss a class or there's days where honestly – I, I I don't if I have a good group of kids they all volunteer to read but it takes a while to get there. There are days where if I want the kids to work quietly on something they can put the audiobook on. I do make them I force them to follow along with the real book. They should be taking notes. There's a lot of stuff, you know, they should be writing down as they go through them, but that will allow them another avenue to do that. So, I thought it was kind of cool because it's a lot of the Tom's Big Spider stuff is just an extension of my teaching. I enjoy teaching. I, I try to approach this stuff like I'm teaching. And this is something where things that I did for Tom's Big Spiders, I'm now like, wait a minute, this works really well for me to use in a classroom. So good news is I have a bunch of these done. I should have the majority done before I go back to school. We'll get to try them out. Hopefully they don't get annoyed by my voice, but the sound effects are pretty cool. Bad news is my voice has been strained. So Anyway, there's five minutes of talking about what I do in my free time now, but school's coming up. I figured that would be a point of interest and want to explain why I'm losing my voice. So that will about do it for this one. As always, thanks so much for anybody that takes the time to listen. I've been getting a lot. I I think I'm understanding podcast culture a lot more, and I was reading an article about podcasts where it's talking about the fact that with the YouTube videos, they're kind of, it's, and not faulting anybody to watch, I watch YouTube videos all the time, but it's more of a... You you kind of watch part of a video, you turn it off, you watch part of another video. Some people don't get all the way through the videos. It's it's kind of more entertainment, where in podcasts, people that invest in podcasts generally are investing in the entire podcast. They consume the whole thing. They don't go, hey, I'm going to listen to five minutes of this podcast and flip off and watch the newest video from blah, blah. It's a huge investment. So I'm starting to appreciate much more now the culture of podcasts and how much people really enjoy these. And I'm getting emails and and comments and some of the people are coming over to my YouTube page and be like, hey, I just want to let you know I found this from the podcast, which is awesome. And I love the fact that people that are listening to the podcast 
are going through the whole thing. They're hearing every word. They're listening to it. Because I know sometimes I'll throw up a video on YouTube and it's amazing because I spend a lot of time on these and I, I'm doing them for a purpose. It's not like, hey, look at I got spiders. Yay. It's like, hey, I have some information I want to share for people that are interested. And I threw up like one day I threw up a 25-minute video or 20-minute video and within, oh God, it might have been 30 seconds of me posting it. Somebody went, awesome video. That was amazing. Dude, it's it's it, it's only been up 30 seconds. You haven't watched it. So I thought it was a nice gesture because at least they're commenting and I guess that helps you with getting your YouTube videos noticed on YouTube with their algorithm or whatever. So thank you for that. Don't get me wrong. But it's like I'd almost rather you, you watch the video and enjoy it. So I, the thing I found out about the podcast is more than not, often than not, people consume these entire podcasts. If, if it's not one sitting, they're going to come back and listen to it. Where the videos, if you look at the average amount of time people spend on the videos, it's usually not anywhere near 100%. It's a lot of people come on, they watch the first few minutes of it and go, eh, yeah, moving on. And that counts as a view where it's not really a view. So anyway, I don't know what I'm talking about here, why I got into this, but I'm really starting to appreciate the podcast audience even more than I was previous because I think it's it's people that are really, they're so into this stuff. With YouTube, you're still going to catch some people that are just like, ooh, spiders. You guys are all really into this stuff, appreciate it, like the information, digest the information this way. So I've had people email me, please don't stop the podcast. I am not stopping the podcast. I love the podcast. I love the format. I love that I can, I just, I love everything about it. And it's just, again, I made this very clear when I first started the podcast. It was something I just kind of tried and didn't think it was going to do well. And a lot of you that have complimented me on it usually get the comment, yep, I'm really shocked this did well, but I'm getting it more now. I'm The audience is growing. Like I'm very impressed with how many people people are listening now. It's it's been huge. I love it. So, no fears guys. I am not unless I, you know, some, knock on wood something happens to my voice. I'm not stopping the podcast. If you look at my track record so far, I've missed I think one week with the podcast in a year and a half where videos sometimes I miss 3-4 weeks in between. It's just it's a lot harder to do the videos and put them together and the format's different. So, I enjoy this format. We're going to keep doing it. Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. So, as always, thanks so much to all of you that listen and I'll catch you all next time.